Hello, welcome back to the Chilled Society. I'm Hannah, and if you hear any fun noises, it's an air conditioner because it's really, really hot today. Valid. It's real hot. So if there's any like strange background noise, it's probably the air conditioner. So we're dying a little bit, <laughs> and that's fine. Hi, it be. I'm still here. It's still Katie. Yay! We have a guest. We do. You sure do. He's finally here. I'm finally on the podcast. It only took almost two whole seasons. Yes. After much fan <laughs> craving for me to finally be here, I'm finally, finally here. Yes. What's your name? My name is Dustin J. Rastetter. Great. As if you don't know, I am currently dating one of the two at the table. And it's not me. It's not Katie. <laughs> it's not it Katie. What happened to be Hannah? It is. So here I am. And I'm here to talk about a very interesting, intriguing topic today. One that you are not in love with, but you love to, like, read about and research about. I would say I'm in love with it. Okay. As a topic. That's fair. As a topic. That's as, fair. A as a topic, not the event. <laughs> yeah. Not the event itself, but learning, the topic. Learning the history about it, I would say I'm very, very interested in. Um... We're recording this um, the day before, but the day this should be up is April 26th, which would happen to be the 33... No, no. 36. Is it 36? I believe it is 36. Would you like me to look it up? Yeah. Okay. I believe it has been 36 years since the topic we're going to talk about today, which was the disaster at Chernobyl. She's doing the math. Uh... I think it is 36. It'll be 36 years on the day you're listening to this podcast, if you listen to it on the first day, which you should, because this podcast is great. Aw, thanks. Um, but we are recording the day before, so this will be on the day of the 36th year anniversary of the disaster at Chernobyl. Yes. Yeah, it happened in 1986, so that, I think that's 36. Yeah, 36 years. It's a long, long time ago. Yeah. I mean, it's not a long, long time ago, but it's a long time ago. Mm. Feels like it anyway. None of us were alive. No. <laughs> None of us not. were alive no. for this. Not even thought at this point. <laughs> no. Um, okay, so before before we get fully into this, Dustin's drinking G Fuel. Always. Shout in out the, G Fuel. In the tall boy shaker cup that is PewDiePie. And you were drinking the Elden Ring flavor. Elden Ring inspired flavor, Crimson Tears, which tastes like prickly pears. Yes. A very but interesting flavor. I did not like it at first. And on my second try, I seem to have changed my mind, I guess. So here we are. <laughs> it was pretty good. Yeah, it's not it's not bad. Not bad. It's definitely not in my like upper echelon, but it's it's not bad. It's up there. It's up there for you. Yeah, for me, definitely. Shout out G Fuel once again. Love Shout G Fuel. Shout out G Fuel. Please, sp- please sponsor the podcast. Especially now that you're not doing NFTs. <laughs> Those dang NFTs. Sweet. Those dang NFTs, man. Um, I also don't know how much I'll talk because I feel like hot garbage Ooh. today. So, again, it's really hot out, hence the air conditioner, the fan we've got going over in the corner, and I think I'm dehydrated, so... Water. This is like my fourth bottle today. It's my second in the last like hour and a half. So 
I might go through another one while we're here. Probably. <laughs> so if I don't say much, it's not because I'm not interested. It's because I don't feel good. Just putting that out there. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I guess I'll just get started. Um, I don't really want to come across as too school teachery, teaching teacher. a lesson. <laughs> so I'm going to try to explain everything as best as I can, and I'll get um, Katie and Hannah's opinions, or if they have any questions, I can answer them. But basically... Before the whole entire um, invasion of Ukraine by Russia, um, like two years ago, if you were to ask almost anybody where Chernobyl was even located on a map, I don't even think most people could tell you about where it even is located. Yeah. It's, it's in Ukraine. Yeah. It's in Ukraine. Um, and I just think it's such an interesting case because um, whenever you ask anybody... You know, what their favorite, or not, I wouldn't say favorite, but I guess, like, their most interesting or what they remember, like, disaster. Like, you know, they talk, depending on who you ask, they say, like, Pearl Harbor or, like, 9-11. One of the hurricanes, maybe. Hurricane Katrina, you know, like, the tsunami in Japan, something like that. But almost always you'll never get anybody to mention Chernobyl. And I find that interesting because little does anybody know that Chernobyl could have very easily ended humankind population as a whole as we speak. Like, we wouldn't, nobody would be alive if it wasn't for the work of some very, very good people. So, I'm going to break it down from the start of the, before the explosion, 12 hours before the explosion, all the way up until today, 36 years later. So, like I said, this all started on. April 25th, 1986, which would be the day before the explosion, 12 hours before the explosion, it's about 2 p.m., um, three men meet in a room, a meeting room. Those three men would later become infamously known for their role in Chernobyl. Their names were Viktor Brukarnov, Nikolai Fomin, and Anatoly Dyatlov. So they meet in this room 12 hours before the explosion to discuss the safety test on Reactor 4 where the explosion occurred. So basically the meeting starts off with Fomin tells Brukarnov that the power has been reduced in the reactor from 3,200 megawatts to 1,600 megawatts to run this safety test. They have to get this safety test done. This safety test is extremely important to them as a whole, mm -hmm. to, to everybody that works there, the safety test is extremely important. So they have it running half power as it usually would, and they're ready to start the test and get it over with. However, Brukarnov, who is the head guy, he's the biggest guy in the whole operation, um, he says they have to wait because someone calls a grid controller from Kiev, which is the neighboring town, called and said, hey, you know, we can't, you can't really do that test. We can't afford you to go down on power because all the power is being used up because, like, April 25th, so it was the end of the month. So all of the power being used was being used in factories for, like, their productivity quotas and end-of-the-month stuff and meeting all this stuff. So um, they couldn't do the test. They basically had to scrap it. Um, or at least competent management would have scrapped the test. Yes. <laughs> um, so then, Brukarnov asks the other two, Nikolai Fomin, who was like his second in command, and then mm -hmm. 
Anatoly Dyatlov, who was kind of like third in command, mm -hmm. basically says, hey, do you know, do we have to scrap the test? And Fomin says, I don't think we have to scrap it. We can run it 1600 all day and we'll do it. Um, oh, the Green Controller said they had to wait 10 hours till after midnight. That's when they would be able to do the test. And they said, no, we'll be all right. We'll run it 1600 for the next 10 hours and then we'll complete the test at midnight and then everything should be fine. Um, Dyatlov was the one who suggested this because if they completed the safety test, then um, Brukarnov, who was the number one, would get promoted to go to some other you know um, power plant, make mm -hmm. a lot more money, be a lot more you know, and then Fomin would be promoted to his spot, and then Dyatlov was hoping that he could be promoted to number two. Mm -hmm. So he saw it as a opportunity to impress both of them uh, and, and said to grow, to grow really, yeah, to grow yeah. all three of them. And he said, you know, I will personally supervise the test. I'll come back, I'll go home, get some sleep, come back at midnight, and I will supervise the test and make sure that it's completed. Mm -hmm. So that happens, right? Now, let's talk a little bit about Reactor 4, the reactor that it happened at. So it went into operation on December 20th, 1983, so three years prior to this meeting. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the town, it was in like a new town. That they, like, made specifically for, like, people that were, relate like, yeah. related to those who were going to yeah. work at the power plant, I think. And yeah. then I think other people might have just ended up there. Yeah, they were, like, down. Yeah, they're, it's, like, relatively, like, new. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, relatively new town. Um, mostly just made of apartment buildings for people that worked at the power plant. So they would all catch the bus together. They'd all go there, etc. So... So, like I said, it was December 20th. That date is important because 11 days after it was in operation, Viktor Brukarnov, the guy who was top, signed a document certifying the completion of the construction of the reactor. Because they completed it on December 31st, before the new year, they were awarded a bunch of different medals. Brukarnov got Hero of Socialist Labor. Um, Nikolai Flamin was rewarded Valorous Labor. And Anatoly Dyatlov was given an order of the Red Banner, which is basically a medal in the USSR. It was a medal for um, dedication and courage on the battlefield, which I don't really know why they'd give it to him, but for something that doesn't involve a battle. But regardless, they were all given awards and they were all received, you know, they were highly regarded by the USSR for completing it in such a short time. Um, in order to sign that document, all the safety tests on the reactor need to be successfully completed. And as we've already talked about, they were not. There was one that needed to be completed. So they signed that document, and basically it was, they shouldn't have signed it. It was against the law. They broke the law. Nobody knew at the time, but three years later, we would all find out the hard way. So now I'm going to get kind of like, kind of teachery for a little bit, because I have to explain <laughs> how a nuclear reactor works. So I'm going to try my hardest to... Um, to not be confusing and just kind of explain it, and then if you need any clarifying questions, I can. So, how a nuclear reactor works is the, it's this big, gigantic core, right? And it constantly generates heat, right? And um, there's a series of pumps on both sides of the big, huge, gigantic core, and they constantly flood it with water to... It serves two purposes. The first one is to cool it down mm -hmm. because it's constantly being heated up. Yeah. But the main purpose is the core's heat will then take that water and it'll turn that water into steam mm -hmm. because it's so hot. 
So it takes that um, water, turns it into steam, and then the steam goes, it flies up through the core, and there's a turbine at the top that spins. Yes. And that spins the turbine, and that process creates electricity. So that's how... So there's the big core, hot, creates steam, spins a turbine, creates electricity. So that's yes. basically how a nuclear reactor works. Um, the safety test that was not completed was... It was basically a a um, scenario where, like, let's say... Like, how do you... It's like, how does a power plant keep that going mm -hmm. when there's no power at the plant like let's say there was a blackout or there was equipment failure or attack by the united states because we were still in that time so they wanted to simulate what would happen if that happened and because they were testing this if the power was out there would be no water from that was coming from the pumps to cool the core and what would happen was the core would just heat up and heat up and heat up and keep heating up mm -hmm. And in turn, it would overheat, the fuel would melt down, and then it would be a nuclear disaster. Mm -hmm. The kind of thing they were trying to avoid. So basically, the solution was there were these three diesel fuel generators with the pump. And um, what they were doing is, if they kicked on, they would just keep it running if mm -hmm. there was no power, right? As generators usually do. The problem was, it took the generators 60 seconds to turn on when this scenario happened. So the problem with that is if there's no water in the core for six, even just 60 seconds, it would, there would be a nuclear meltdown. So yeah. they, needed to get, they needed to somehow bridge the gap in order to keep the nuclear reactor going and not have it you know, melt down. Mm -hmm. So the test was basically they needed to somehow convert the energy from the steam that spins the turbine, and as the turbine is slowing down, the electricity gets rerouted into the generators to keep spinning the turbine just enough until the generators kick on fully, and then the turbine spins. So that was what the safety test basically was. Confusing? Not confusing? Okay, so, anyways. Uh, this is a very important for the story. This is very important. This was not the first time they attempted this test. They tried it the first time, they completely failed. Tried it the second time, completely failed. Okay. Tried it a third time, completely failed. And the fourth time was the disaster of Chernobyl as we know it. Okay. So, at, at 2 p.m. on April 25th, the day before Chernobyl, the day the test was supposed to take place, it was supposed to take place, like we said earlier, at 2 p.m. on the day before. Um, the reactor was reduced from 3,200 to 1,600 megawatts, like I told you. And it was ready to be reduced to 700 for the test. That's the lowest it would go would be 700. That's where they would run the test. That's where everything would kick into motion. That's where everything would be calculated, etc., etc. So um, since they didn't scrap the test and they let it run on 1,600, for it was only supposed to be at 1,600 megawatts for you know an hour or two, maybe, maybe, maybe at most two hours. But since they let it run for 10 hours, it created two gigantic problems. The first problem was it was kind of a human problem. There was a shift change at midnight because they ran three different shifts. Mm -hmm. um, the mid-shift or the day sh not the day shift, the mid-shift, like the 4 p.m. to your midnight, those were the people that have done the test every time. They were the ones that knew what to do. 
They've done it before. Even though they failed, they still knew how to do it. Yeah. Um, and since it was supposed to be after midnight when they could do the test, mm-hmm. a new shift came in. Whole new crew. Whole new crew. None of them knew what they were doing. They had never done it. Mm-hmm. And most of them walked in at midnight. Didn't they all have been, like, trained to do this? You would think. You would think. You're going to say that, you're going to sit there and say that a lot to yourself, and the viewers will probably <laughs> say that a lot to themselves, too, is... Shouldn't they have done this, or shouldn't they think about this? But yeah. it was just everybody just didn't want to think. Mostly the three the three big names I've told you so far are the ones that just did not care. They just wanted to get the test done. Okay. So the shift comes in, no prior training, at midnight. A lot of them came in and they were not even told before they clocked in that they were doing the test. They walked so, into the room and they're just like, "Hey, we're doing this test." He's like, okay. "I don't know what I'm doing." Nobody did. So they just walked in this room. They had no training. They were not even told they were given the test. So they just walked in, and the people that were like, were just like, hey, you hey, can't do that thing. Yeah, that, that huge, gigantic test that is a very important part of this no, this reactor, you're doing it. And even, on the back, good luck. Like, yeah, basically. Let's, okay. okay. So another name I'm going to introduce is Leonid Toptonov. He was in charge of stabilizing the reactor and taking it down from 1,600 to 700, which was... No, I mean, it's it's a pretty basic thing for a nuclear engineer, but very, very, very important job. Um, he was only 25 years old, which is only two years older than me in real life right now. And his work on the job, like his experience on the job, would you like to take a guess? Anybody take a guess? Work on the job? Of how long he was working at that place as a nuclear engineer? Two months. A year. Four months. That's, mm. the, that's all he had was four mm. months of experience. Only 120 days on the job. And he was in charge of doing the most important thing of the whole test. Great. Oh. So. <laughs> Just love your reactions. Oh. oh. Yeah, so far it's not sounding real good at all. So, as the power was being reduced from 1600 to 700 for the test by Leonid Toptonov, the power started dramatically dropping. Like, dramatically. Like, instead of going down one unit at a time, it was going down three, six, twelve units at a time. And it came to the point where Toptonov wasn't even touching the control panel, and the power was significantly dropping. So, it drops all the way into the 20s. It was supposed to be at no lower than 700, and it was all the Mm. way down to the low 20s. Mm. You should have been like, huh, this isn't good, I'd probably... Tell someone? Yeah. Or do something? <laughs> you like, oh, oh, no, this isn't good. And you just stood there? So, basically, another thing that I didn't really mention is that the guy who... The main guy of this whole entire story, the main villain, the one you want to root against, <laughs> the main guy was Anatoly Dyatlov, the guy who was third in charge, the one who was supervising this test. The one that suggested the thing? Yes. Okay. He was basically a gigantic asshole. Okay. He, the only thing in his mind when he got there that day was get this test done at any means necessary. Okay. As you, I'm, I'm going to keep reading, and as you'll see later on, it comes to a point where you're just like, you want to strangle this guy because the way he treated his employees, the way that he just gross negligence, just absolutely gross negligence just to get this test done. This could have been prevented. I want to stress this. This could have been prevented. 50 separate times and it was just never prevented because this guy wanted promoted so bad so as i was saying it dropped out of the low 20s 
I'm going to introduce another name. I'm sorry I keep introducing so many names, but <laughs> um, Alexander Akimov, he was the head of the night shift. He was the biggest guy there That besides, you know, Anatoly Diablo. Did he know what was going on? He did not know what was going on. Dude. This, this was pushed, This like I said, it was Dude. pushed on him, uh-huh. so he didn't know either. Um, but he basically says, you know, hey, you know, we have to scrap this. You know, like, you, we can't do this test, like... The only way we can really, you know, maintain is that we have to go slowly up. You know, we have to bring our power from 20 all the way back to 700 very, very, very slowly over the course of hours and hours, maybe even days. Like, but that'd be the only way. And Dyatlov basically wanted to hear none of it. He said, we need to get this test done. He gets into, they get into a little war with words. Akimov is telling Dyatlov... We're basically sitting in a xenon pit, which xenon is a is a very deadly poisonous gas that was created. It's created when um, nuclear reactors. It's created in the core when nuclear reactors are really low on power. It they always create it, but it burns so hot at thirty two hundred and even sixteen hundred that it kind of starts. It it burns away, so it's not a big deal. But when it's so low on power, it just kind of sits there and sits there and builds and builds. So he brings that up. He says, hey, you know, we can't do this. this there's the poisonous gas in there. We can't, you know, we can't continue this. And Dyatlov basically says to him, um, it's because he was incompetent. Akimov was incompetent. All the employees on the third shift were incompetent. They so had, you threw them into a situation that, that they, they don't, weren't aware yeah. of. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. He called them all incompetent, said that they all could not do their jobs and said that they need to raise the power again. He said that he has worked at a nuclear power plant for 25 years. So basically he pulled the um, seniority card over all the employees. So when you get pulled the seniority card, you kind of can't argue because they have more experience than you, even if they're wrong. Um, He says he's been doing it for 25 years, and he said that he knows for a fact that this test is safe. Even with the Xenon pit, it wasn't safe. But he said that he knew that it was safe, and anybody in the control room who disagreed would be instantly fired, and they would never work for a power plant in the entire continent of Russia again. Oh boy. Power hungry. So, power hungry. You do the thing that you know is not safe and could potentially have a nuclear meltdown, or you lose your livelihood and your family is without any paying anybody paying the bills. Right. So, they, against their will, basically, they kind of pushed forward. They said, we're going to do it together. We're going to do it together. So, the request, the test required 700 megawatts, like I said, and they could only bring it up to a grand total of 200. It would not go any higher, no matter how hard they tried. This is, you know, 10, 15 minutes after that whole war of words happened. They are trying to push the power up. It would not go above 200. Um, Akimov, the, the head shift guy, said, you know, we can't do this test. Like, it's impossible. Dyatlov still pulled the authority card and authorized the test. So, because the reactor was, you know, so low for so long and so many things were wrong with it, uh, it was all funky. The simple process of nuclear reaction was nowhere near what it should be. It should, it should be this thing, and it was miles away from what should be happening. So, 
Um, once all the... There are these things that go into it called boron control rods. They're like these long little rods. There was 211 of them. They go on the top... They're like on the top. They kind of get pushed into the reactor, and they kind of help to slow reactivity. So at this point, when they were at the 200 megawatts, you know, they just built the power back up. 205 out of 211 were out of the thing to try to get the power back up. Okay. Because if you have them in, the power goes down, or it's hard to get power to come back. But if you have them out, the power comes back easier. So all of them were out, but the power still would not come back up. So, um, the reason why, and you viewers and you, uh, you guys might be asking the question of, why did he continue this test? He knew that it was wrong, so why did he continue it? I mean, obviously, besides, you know, power hungry, wanting to be promoted, there is one button, and it's called the AZ5, or AZ5 button. This is basically be all end all if everything goes wrong you can push this button the nuclear reactor will shut down and you can restart no matter what happens so this was to be only used in the worst case of emergencies ever what happens was when you press that button all the all the control rods shove into the reactor at the same time the core slows down the heat and it slows down because the control rods are in it and basically, it stops everything. So, he knew that this test would not go the way he wanted, but even if something were to happen, he knew that he could press that button and end it and just, you know, worst comes to worst. So, when the boron control rods were outside, um, they obviously pushed the AZ-5 button because um, the power started to go up and up and up, and they weren't, you know, they weren't trying to get it to go up. Yes. So they pressed AZ-5. So, they were put back into the reactor. However, because the reactor was all funky, like we said, the AZ-5 button had a really, really big flaw in it. Where... I have to blow my nose. Okay. <laughs> Hannah's blowing her nose. I am. So, um, the boron control rods have one fatal flaw. At the very tips of the control rods are graphite. And what graphite does is it's basically the exact polar opposite of boron. Boron slows down reactivity. Graphite accelerates it. So what ended up happening was when they pushed that button, the, the, fuel, the boron control rods started to come in. And since there were fuel channels that were ruptured, channels that were ruptured, the tips got stuck in the reactor and the boron rods were not in the reactor so the reactivity kept increasing and increasing and increasing um so the power skyrocketed by the time the explosion happened um and this is this is absolutely shocking if you don't know if you've never read anything about it the lid on the reactor weighed 1000 tons which perspective is two million pounds wait two million pounds it blew it off like completely skyrocketed off the um the reactor 
which was designed to run at 3,200 as a maximum. Like, no, should never be any higher than 3,200. If there is, there's a big problem. They never got a final... The final reading was beyond 33,000 megawatts. So almost over 10 times the amount that... Sh the power that should have been in there. So the second the lid, the huge, gigantic, 2 million pound lid, it popped off. The second that happened, oxygen rushed in and mixed with all the stuff in the reactor and created a gigantic explosion, which is what blew the roof off, created fire everywhere, blew the core completely to pieces, hundreds of thousands of pieces everywhere. So yeah, that was, that was the events leading from the explosion up to the explosion. Didn't this happen at like two or three in the morning? It happened one. at one, one third, around one thirty in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because no, none of the, like, civilians knew what was happening because everyone was asleep. And yeah. then they woke up in the morning and there, everyone had to go to work. Mm -hmm. Everyone was, like, rushed to, to the... Going to work, go to, to school. Yep. Yep. In the morning. Because I remember, like, reading it and that everyone had to rush to the plant. Like, no one mm -hmm. knew what was happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Basically. So, so now we'll get into post-explosion events. So, immediately after this gigantic explosion would happen, as you can assume, everybody was, you know, nobody knew what happened, nobody knew the severity of what happened. Firefighters from many nearby towns, many neighboring towns, were all dispatched to put out what they were reported as the roof was on fire. You know, there was an accident at the power plant, the roof's on fire. So they go there, just expecting to fight a fire. Upon arrival, they saw the hole of the roof, and they started to fight the fire. Um, the ground... They saw many shiny chunks of metal on the ground right outside the reactor building. <sighs> Big chunks of metal, and they were, you know, they're thinking they were just some kind of rocks. They were like, what is this? So many oh. firefighters would pick it up and be like, what, what is going on? They'd drop it. They immediately, when they picked that up, it was about the same sensation as sticking your hand into a burning fireplace. It's right into a fire. It's about the same sensation they felt on their hand. So, obviously, no matter how fast they dropped the rock, no matter what, um, the pain would become more and more unbearable over time as their skin started to curl up on itself and then eventually begin to melt. Ugh. Ugh. God. Sorry, sorry, trigger warning, sorry. <laughs> um, the reason for this was because they were picking up pieces of graphite. Like I mentioned earlier, graphite is increasing nuclear energy. The only place in an entire nuclear facility that you will find graphite is on the inside of a nuclear reactor core. So they were picking up pieces of the nuclear reactor core, and as you can assume, it is coated in soap. Basically, pure radiation. It's p basically picking <laughs> up pure radiation in your hand. So that's why their skin started to melt, bubble, etc. God. Um, the thought makes me all. I don't know. Um, I don't know. After this is going now, like like we were talking about, and like Katie mentioned, this was all about 1 o'clock in the morning. Yes. So now we're kind of moving a little bit forward into maybe a couple hours after the explosion, maybe like 6 a.m., kind of like the break of dawn. Um, after many hours of fighting the fire, you know, they're still there to fight the fire. That's what they were there for. Um, the firefighter's body started to give out on them for being, you know, exposed to so much radiation mm -hmm. that they had no, nobody had no idea. They, yeah. 
nobody knew anything. So um, dozens of firefighters, dozens and dozens, were taken to a nearby Pripyat hospital. That's a introducing another location, yes. Pripyat. It was a nearby town for Chernobyl. Um, many reported a taste of metal. So, um, so now inside. Now we're going to go back to move inside to the plant. So many scientists inside the plant had no clue what had happened. So they poured out decimeters, and what decimeters are, dosimeters, I don't, however you want to pronounce it, um, decimeters. What they do is they measure radioactivity in the air. Um, so they measure, they pull out their decimeters just to make sure, and they found out the air was contaminated with 3.6 rodkin, rod, rodkin. I don't know how to say the word, but um, it was as high as the decimeter went. So 3.6, it was as high as it possibly went. So basically, that's the equivalent of 400 chest x-rays at once. So it's not the worst thing in the world, but definitely you don't want to be around it, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what everybody's thinking at the power plant. They pull up the decimeter, see 3.6, they say... Oh, you know, this is this is bad, but it's not it's not terrible, but it's not great, you know. We want to clean this mess up, get out of here as fast as possible away from this radiation. Um, there was a good decimeter. Because those were all kind of cheap, bottom of the line, only good 3.6. Um, there was a good decimeter in the safe of the power plant. Um, it read up to a thousand rodkin. And like I said, 3.6, just 3.6 is an is four hundred chest x-rays. So this read up to 1,000. They turned it on, and the second they turned it on, it immediately short-circuited and stopped working. So, you know, when they were, when all the, which I'm getting to in a meeting room, there was a meeting room of all the big people in the power plant. Um, it included the three head guys, Viktor Brukarnov, Nikolai Fomin, and, and Anatoly Dyatlov. They were all there. They met with the Pripyat Executive Committee, committee, sorry, they met with the Pripyat Executive Committee, who said that the situation was not dangerous, basically. Um, because we also have to remember that this was in the USSR during... Was it during Cold War or a little bit after? Is that a little bit after Cold War or is this during Cold War? Uh, when did the Cold War end? Okay, we're Googling when did the <laughs> Googling. Cold War end. 1991. Okay, so this was during the Cold War. So the last thing the Soviets wanted to do was look weak or be embarrassed or anything. That was just how they that was how their country operated. So we have to put ourselves in their minds. They don't want this to be a big thing. They want it to be safe. They want it to be just a normal, you know, not really a normal, but you know, this happened, whatever big deal. Water under the bridge, etc. But basically what happened in this big meeting room between the three big guys at the power plant and the Pripyat executive committee was they basically said, hey Cut the phone lines, you know. The we don't want the you know citizens of this town calling their you know relatives or whoever in another town in Russia and you know freaking out saying oh there was this big explosion and causing mass fear. So let's cut the phone lines. Let's also cut the town off. Nobody in or out. Let's figure this problem out. But we'll keep everybody here. We'll keep the country in the dark until we fix the problem. Then it won't be a problem. That's not how to fix the, your problems. Yeah. 
Yeah, not. Which, as you can probably guess, was the absolute worst thing they could have possibly done. Yep. So, um, in the early hours of the morning, th- I'm going to introduce two more names. These names are actually are both very important for the rest of the story. The other guys were just kind of for that for their time. I introduced them, but the two names I'm going to introduce today, in the early hours of the morning, a man named Valery Legasov. He was he receives a call from Boris Sherbina. So those are the two names, Valery Legasov and Boris Sherbina. Um, Boris Sherbina was the head of the Bureau for Fuel and Energy of Russia, so he was a big, big, powerful guy. He um, he called Valery Legasov, who was just a sci- he was a really well-regarded scientist, um, dealing with nuclear energy. So he calls him and basically says, "Hey, you're there's a task force um, put in place by how do you say his first name? Gorbachev. What's his first name? Gorbachev. Um, Mikhail. Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the like the president of Russia. I don't know what the actual term is, but he was like the president of Russia at the time. So there was there was a task force based to clean up Chernobyl, and Boris Sherdmina and Valery Legasov were both on it. So he was basically supposed to just be... Valery Legasov was nowhere near as high of a standing as Boris Sherdmina. So basically... He was just there to be the nerdy scientist who answered questions and basically only speak when spoken to. That's just basically what he was there for. Nice. So yeah. now we're going to go back to the firefighters in the hospital in Pripyat and all that. So inside the hospital in Pripyat, it is now overflowing with hundreds and hundreds of not only firefighters, but firefighters, scientists, plant workers, civilians, all reporting major burns all over their bodies. From head to toe, top to bottom, just one big burn, basically. And and there was a whole entire burn ward set up. Um, originally, they, you know, they all were using, uh, like, not burn cream, but they were basically treating it like they were just in a house fire. They were treating, like, normal burns. But they're chemical burns, meaning that all those chemicals are soaked into all their clothes, everything. So the nurses started to take off all the firefighters' clothing, all the um, plant workers' clothing, and there's a basement in the Pripyat Hospital. They would they took all the clothing and they threw it in the basement to be disposed of later on. However, that later on never came, and we will come back to that later. So. Sorry to keep jumping around, but now we're going back to Legasov and Boris Sherbina. So, Valery Legasov meets with Boris and Gorbachev and many of the most important men in the USSR in a meeting room. Boris insists the situation is under control because he heard what, you know, he heard from the, um, from the plant workers and stuff. They heard 3.6 Rodenkin, not a big deal, etc., etc., um, so he said the situation is under control. The meeting is adjourned. They all stand up. Valery Legasov then risks his life saying he contradicts everything Boris Sherbina just said and said, um, this is way more dangerous than anyone can imagine. Um, basically, he's the smart mind in this. He says this is way more dangerous than anyone possibly thinks. He talks about He talks about how... The firefighters brought the burns on their hands for picking up shiny rocks, which was graphite. So he talked about that at the meeting. He talked about um, 
how they reported 3.6, and he knew that that was the lowest that the decimeters went, so he, that also was a red flag to him. Basically, all the stuff that I told you, he knew at that meeting right after Chernobyl happened. Mm-hmm. So he told this to the whole meeting, ris- risking his life, because basically you stand out against public officials. You know, if you would disagree with Gorbachev in, in Russia, you'd be shocked. You can't publicly go out and, you know... So he risked his life, but it worked because Gorbachev demanded that Boris Sherbina go straight to Chernobyl with Valery Legasov and see with his own eyes what the situation was so he could report back to him. So that way they don't have to rely on plant workers, etc. Et like yeah. yeah. So in order to see how much radi they got to the they got to the plant. Um they arrived in a helicopter. Uh Valery Legasov immediately knew something was wrong. He looked down from the helicopter and saw all across the rooftops and the ground, he saw shining, 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 which he knew was graphite. So he said, obviously, something is very wrong. Of course, Boris Sherbina, being a high official in the USSR, didn't believe him and was basically like, I want to see this for myself. They land on the ground. In order to see how much radiation was actually coming out, because... That was Valerie Legasov's biggest thing, was there's no way that it's 3.6. There's no way. And um, the military ordered a, a gigantic decimeter that could read who knows how high. It could read anything. It could, it could You could stick it in the middle of a nuclear reactor, and it could read it. So they knew for a fact that this would give them an accurate reading. So they decided to strap it on the front of a truck, cover the truck with lead shielding, because lead, you know, reflects radioactivity as much as it can. So they covered the truck with lead shielding, all this stuff, and they drove the truck right to the front gates, right where the explosion happened, and they drove the truck out, and they got their reading. Would anyone like to take a guess what the reading was? Like we said earlier, 3.6, just as a low number, like 3.6 was 400 chest x-rays. So you don't even want to be around 3.6. And you said earlier the 1,001 broke? 1,001 broke. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can't remember because we watched the miniseries together, Dustin and I did. Yeah, a lot, and of my, a lot of my sources, the miniseries, HBO miniseries, if you watch this podcast and you are interested in Chernobyl as much as I am, please go watch yeah. the HBO miniseries. It is so, it's so good. good. It's so good. It's so good. I'll go with 3.4 million. I don't know. Like, um, I have no clue. But... I don't remember. I don't remember what it was, but I don't remember. Uh, darn it. So what would you, what, just take a final guess. I guess. I don't remember. Three million. It was not that high. It was only 15,000. Ah. However, 15,000 doesn't sound like a lot. It really doesn't. It, only, it doesn't sound like it's that, you know. So let me put it in perspective, just like I did earlier with the lid. So, meaning that every single hour after Chernobyl... Yes. So, at this point, it was at least... I think it was, at this point, it was about 20-ish hours after Chernobyl. Yes. Right? Every single hour after Chernobyl, this... um, It gave off twice the nuclear activity... Than the bomb that dropped on Hiroshima did. 
Hiroshima. Yeah, I was gonna say you what you butchered that a little bit. Why? Well, well, that's how they say it in the show. Um, so, anyway, Hiroshima, the bomb, the nuclear bomb, yes. dropped on Hiroshima. Every single hour, it was displaying twice that amount of radiation. So, twenty hours after Chernobyl, that's forty bombs, forty nuclear Ridiculous. bombs dropped on Hiroshima. Ugh. So that, that puts it into it. Okay, so now we get on to how do we stop this? You know, yes. We see the problem. The world is aware of the problem. Well, the USSR at the time is aware of the problem. How do we solve it? You can't just walk into the plant and get a fire extinguisher and start spraying it. You can't just do that. The easiest way to extinguish the fire was to pour thousands and thousands of tons of sand and boron. Remember the boron control rods? So you need sand and boron. Sand will kind of extinguish the fire. Boron will kind of help lower the radioactivity. This was... And it had to be dropped from the air from helicopters, like in big crates, because you can't drive a truck up to it. You can't... I mean, you could with lead shielding, but anybody in that would instantly die, basically. So... This created a gigantic problem, however... When you dropped all this sand in the boron to extinguish the flames, and it would take thousands of drops because you can't get close to it, so you have to drop it from however far away and let the wind kind of carry the sand in the boron. You can't drop it right over because you can't skit right over it. So this created a gigantic problem, however. The core of the reactor was still exposed. Yes. And it was still heat. It was still, like, heating up. So... When that sand sat on that core and that fire and all that, it kind of started, it created a lava, like a magma. And what happened was the magma would start to melt through the ground. So this doesn't sound like that big of a deal yet. However, because um, Valery Legasov, the guy that ordered the sand and boron, yes. the smart scientist guy, yes. he knew this was going to happen. But, you know, he said this will create some problems down the line, we'll get to them later, yes. but this will get the fire extinguished. What he did not realize was once the... And this is where the Chernobyl could have definitely ended human population. This is where it comes in. So, when this sand that created into a lava starts to melt down below the surface, mm -hmm. there are these three gigantic tanks underneath um, the reactor. And they were kind of like a reserve for water and everything. Uh, they were drained empty. However, since this was, at this point, I think it was over over a full day since Chernobyl, since the explosion, um, the firefighters, when they were fighting the fire, you know, obviously they had to get evacuated right away. They were taken to the hospital. Yes. All their trucks were still pumping water into... The fire, because, you know, they can't just get in their fire trucks and drive away. They all got taken by ambulance. So all these fire trucks were just kind of sitting there spraying water into the building to kind of, um, which that filled the, the tanks, the reserve tanks underneath it. And the reason that's a problem is the second this lava touched that water, all that water in those tanks mm -hmm. and mixed with it, it would create a gigantic thermal explosion. So the problem with that is you would create an explosion big enough that it would hit all three of the other reactors at Chernobyl. 
those would it would snowball into to a point where it would reach all the other Soviet reactors reactors and then they would eventually come across to America, reach our reactors, and it would just be a, a vicious, vicious, vicious cycle to the point where Who knows? Who knows? Human existence, as we know... All existence probably would be gone. Oh, yeah. Everything that is on this earth would be gone forever. So. um, Basically, what happened next was... At around 2 p.m. Yes. On April 27th. So this was 36 hours after the explosion... Um, neighboring cities were all evacuated because they started to realize, hey, this is a problem. This is a yes. big problem. Um, there were there were hundreds of buses that were taken to cities. Everybody was aboard the bus, and they got evacuated. Yeah, weren't they told, like, hours before buses came that you had, like, yeah. an mm-hmm. hour, grab your stuff, get, get out. out. Yeah. Go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically, and then that's all, that's all they really got. So, so now, knowing what they know about the explosion potential, etc., Legasov meets with Mikhail Gorbachev and, you know, Boris Sherbina and all those other yes. very important men in the USSR and tells them about the lava problem. The only, they do have a solution, though. The only solution that they have is those tanks are filled with water. However, if they got three plant workers that know the plant... To go into those tanks, um, they could hand dr- open the valve that was blocking them, and they could, they uh, from the ground level, they could redirect the water, and they could get it, the tanks completely dry. Um, the only problem was, you know, it's right under the reactor core. Yes. It's filled with water. It's all radioactive. Basically, yes. if anybody were to step foot in that water for more than... 15 seconds. They'd probably be dead within a week. So, they ask Gorbachev. They need his permission to kill three plant workers. Three men. And Gorbachev, Green, lights it. All three men enter the tanks, and they open the valves. However, I would like to kind of interject right here with a... um, If you look up the three men who opened the bubbler tanks... For Chernobyl, it was widely reported, you know, back in the times that all three of them died for their heroic actions. Um, they didn't. They all survived at their mm-hmm. hospitalization. And two of them are still alive now. As far as we know, yes. Yeah. Yeah. When the show came out, two of them were still alive. Yes. Yes. So, <laughs> as of 2019, two of them were still alive. So, that's just... I just... So, continuing. So, now, the water is drained. Everything is fine. However, this creates another problem. And this is Chernobyl's last problem. So we're getting there. We're getting to the finish line. (laughs) So this creates Chernobyl's last problem. Yes. Now the lava will still keep going down. It'll go right through the bubbler tanks so that it got rid of that problem. However, now there's a concrete pad that was below the bubbler tanks. And um, it would take about a month for the lava to go all the way through the bubbler tanks, all the way through the concrete pad. And below the concrete pad was groundwater. And if the lava reached the groundwater, 
Um, it would... Sorry, I watched you scroll through your notes. <laughs> I, I, I kind of lost where I was for a second. But anyways, <laughs> if the lava were to melt through the bubbler tanks and then melt through the concrete pad below the bubbler tanks, it would reach groundwater. And that groundwater, would, it leads into the Pripyat River. Yes. Which leads, which leads into the... I'm sorry for anybody who is very knowledgeable on this subject. I'm going to butcher this name so hard. But the Pripyat River then leads into the Dnieper. I think you're close. Which is the primary water supply for over 50 million people in Russia, plus crops needed to grow yep. and livestock needed. Yeah. So, and just animals in general. Yes. Like, so uh, it would be, it would be um, tainted with radioactivity. 50 million people would be without water. Crops would be without water. Livestock would be without water. Everything would be without water. So the solution to this problem is a little bit of a like, it sounds like a, um, it sounds like a movie, like it sounds like it's a movie solution, like it's over the top. But the only way they could do it was to get over four hundred miners from around, like mining for coal. Mm -hmm. They get over four hundred miners from around the USSR to dig a huge, gigantic tunnel underneath that concrete pad. And they would install a heating regulator to stop the lava, which required all of the liquid nitrogen in the USSR. So all of it was needed to stop this. Um, those miners, shout out to all the miners if any of them are still alive. I'm yeah. assuming a lot of them are. Yeah. Um, those miners worked around the clock. Like I said, there was 400 of them, over 400. They worked around the clock effortlessly, tirelessly for a month straight just to dig this tunnel and they prevented the nuclear meltdown. It has been reported that over 100 of them died by the age of 40 just to prevent the, the meltdown. Yeah. So, so now every problem of Chernobyl is solved. Yes. The fire is extinguished. It's still radioactive, obviously, but... Yes. Um, all the big, gigantic problems are out of the way. So now the trial is going to start. The trial to put the three men who did this away. However, right before the trial of Chernobyl, USSR officials were going to fly Valery Legasov, Valery Legasov, the scientist. They were going to fly him out to Vienna to state to the world what happened at Chernobyl tell the world, you know, to give them an inside look of what happened at Chernobyl. The only problem was that Valery Legasov knew one, he had one gigantic secret that he could not tell to the public. In 1975, so this was a decade before Chernobyl, um, the same kind of reactor, it's called an RBMK reactor, the same kind of reactor was used at Chernobyl, had a malfunction at Leningrad. Um, this is where Legasov determined that the flaw of the reactor that made Chernobyl happen. The graphite tips that we mentioned earlier in the boron control rods, um, that was unknown by anybody. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew that. Mm -hmm. They found that flaw. 
um, at the one in Leningrad, the the tips just kind of accelerated it from I think it was like thirty four hundred to five thousand. So not that big of a deal. Yeah. They fixed the problem. Manageable. Yes, it was manageable. So Valery Legasov knew what the problem was. He knew it. However, like I said earlier, the USSR was very into not not being seen as a weak nation, not being seen as people who get stuff wrong. So, the report was written about why the problem happened. However, the two pages that included that were ripped out and kept as a state secret. So nobody in the world knew that problem except for Valery Legasov. Nobody knew it. And he couldn't come out in public because he did once, and it was, it was the pages ripped out. So he can't come out in public about it. So, this was, like I said, it was unknown to anybody in the world except for, you know, state officials and Valery Legasov himself. So, they ordered him to never come out publicly about it and embarrass the nation. But if it never came out publicly, the, there was 16 other RBMK reactors in the USSR. The same kind of reactor. Four of them were at Chernobyl, but the rest of them were all around the USSR. They would never have that fatal flaw fixed. They all had the same flaw, and they'd never have them fixed. So, at the trial in Vienna, he does what the USSR tells him to. He goes there. He tells what happened to Chernobyl. They, he says he has no idea why the RB, why the reactor exploded. Mm-hmm. Because if he spoke out, he was probably going to be shot and killed. Um, so, yeah. He goes there. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh-oh. Hannah's getting up. I am getting up. This oh. gives me a drink break anyway. Okay. You're in low power mode right now. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Hi, YouTube friends. I don't know. I'm just gonna. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. All right, it's back fine. to it. I All promise right, back we're, to al- it. we're almost there, I promise. We got maybe about 10 more minutes left. You got this. So, at the trial of Nikolai Fomin, Viktor Brukarnov, and Antony Dietlov, basically everything I said up to this point was brought up. They were convicted guilty and they were sentenced to 10 years of hard labor each. So, um, after the trial of Chernobyl, like after this all happened, Valery Legasov came out publicly. He couldn't, he could not, um, he couldn't hold it to himself anymore. He had to fix his reactors. This, of course, never made it out to the public because the USSR banned it as, you know, they would. And didn't want it to come out. And did not want it to come out. So they banned it, and he was put, um, Legasov was put under constant watch by the KGB, and if you don't know who the KGB is, it's like the secret police force of the USSR at the time. Yes. They were the most important, like, if you spoke out against any of the USSR things, you'd probably, they were the ones that would probably shoot and kill you. Yes. The KGB was all over Russia. Um, he was basically never allowed to speak to anyone else ever again about anything. He basically would go home from that, you know, whenever they decided. He'd go home. He was never allowed to leave. They would supply him food and water and stuff. They would always keep a constant watch on his house. And if they suspected any foul play or anything, mm-hmm. he was he was dead. He was gone, though. He was dead. 
So, the viewers might be asking at this point, so, if Valerie, if Valery Legasov, the most important man in this whole trial, knew about this fatal flaw in the RBMK reactors, and he spoke out against it, but it never made it to the public of Russia, how do we know about it? So, what ended up happening was, in his house, he recorded audio memoirs de describing every event that I described to you, to you, the viewer, and to you two. He then hid the tapes and committed suicide. April 26, 1988, exactly two years after the explosion of Chernobyl, he committed suicide. Mm -hmm. This is important because when they found his body and they found the tapes, they can't just throw away the tapes. It is, it is like, it makes it impossible for you to ignore those tapes mm -hmm. because he committed suicide. So they surfaced among the scientific community in the USSR, and they fixed the fatal flaw in the RBMK reactors to, re to prevent Chernobyl from ever happening ever again. Yes. So hooray for that, at least. Yes. However, it did come at Valerie Legasov's life. Yes. And many, many, many other lives, which we will get to yeah. in just a second. So after all the problems were solved, after... After every problem was solved at Chernobyl, the cleanup was nowhere near done. Not even mm -hmm. close. The cleanup was far from over. Over 600,000 people were displaced from their homes, and they were tasked with things that just blow my mind about how much they had to do to clean up the area, including digging up as much as six feet of soil all around the explosion area to get all the radioactive, buried down low so it couldn't come back up. They had to cut down every tree. And this one, this one, Hannah, Hannah's not a big fan of this one, but it had to be done. They had to go into Chernobyl and Pripyat and all of his neighboring towns, and they had to kill every animal. Every yeah. single one. Yeah. All, I did not watch that episode of Chernobyl. The um, show. Any animal within, they had to kill them. Because... Like, let's say a deer was infected with, you know, the radioactivity mm. and got out into a town thousands of miles away and made it with another deer. The cycle continues, the radioactivity continues, and they can't get a hold of it. Mm. So they had to go into the town, kill every animal they found. They had to take, you know, they had to go with water spraying trucks and spray down the building, spray down the, the streets. Roads, everything. Everything. Um, the, that exclusion zone that I mentioned was over 1,600 miles from the blast zone. Um, everyone was evacuated from their homes in that 1,600 square miles and told, you know, this is just temporary. You, we need to get all the stuff figured out. We need to get all the radioactivity done. And it might take, you know, a month, a year. It might take a couple years, but you can come back. And... Like I said at the very beginning, this is the 36th anniversary of Chernobyl, and it is still forbidden to return. They still cannot live in those houses. I was watching a Sam and Colby's channel, mm -hmm. and they did something on Chernobyl. Oh. Um, and they met people that lived there when they did their filming. Mm -hmm. And they, it was just people that refused to leave. Mm -hmm. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. It's very interesting. 
Yeah, people people up there are just just different. Built different. <laughs> Built different. Built different. Um and now I only have three more bullet points, so we okay. made it after this Woo. me talking for over an hour at this point. Yes. We finally made it to the end. We've limped all the way to the finish line. <laughs> I only have fun facts left. Okay. They're not necessarily. They're not fun. They're not, but they're not fun facts, but they're facts. So, um, there was a plant worker there named Valery Hodimchuk. Um, the name is significant because his body was never recovered. Yes. He is permanently entombed under Reactor 4. Nobody can ever get to his body. It's too radioactive, it's too dangerous. So he's there forever. He's there forever. Basically. He does, he's never had a proper burial. He's yep. just under there. Um, and I know that Katie, I think from the look that Katie was giving when I was talking about this segment, I think she already knows this, and I know that you know it. Going back to the firefighters, their clothing to this day, 36 years later, is still in the basement uh-huh. of the Pripyat Hospital. And and it's still dangerously so radioactive. radioactive. It's still dangerously radioactive to this day. Like, you have to go in in a full hazmat suit. Um, oh, God. Like, I saw a clip of someone putting a decimeter on it, and it was over 700 Rodkin. Mm-hmm. Still to this day, 30-plus years later. Yep. There's and it's a, still there. Yeah. Uh, there was a forest. Sorry. There's a forest around Chernobyl. The Red Forest, yeah. Yeah. I find that really cool. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Google the Red Forest. The Red Forest is very interesting. I do have a fun fact about that, actually. Go I've ahead. been looking stuff up over here. Go well, you, you finish your facts. Okay, so, I just have a couple more. Just These are like a, like a, like a kind of a rapid-fire round. Um, there is this bridge. It's a railway bridge. Very close to Chernobyl. It's called the Bridge of Death. You can Google yes. that, too, if you want. Um... The Bridge of Death is interesting because there, whenever the explosion first happened way back April 26, 1986, a lot of spectators and civilians went to that bridge to look at it. Mm-hmm. And it has been it's, been... it's been assumed that 95% of those people who were at that railway bridge have passed away because they've been... they were exposed to so much radioactivity... Yep. So that is now forever known as the Bridge of Death. Um, Cancer spikes. Cancer spikes is a big one. Um, All around the neighboring region of Belarus and the neighboring region all around Chernobyl um, for the next couple years, cancer spikes dramatically increased from the exposure to radiation. The highest increase was among children, sadly. But um, cancer spikes went through the roof. Um, there was a building that was introduced in 2017 to, it's kind of like a, um, building that, um, is put over the reactor and it kind of like controls the radioactivity a little bit. Um, it cost $2 billion. Would you like to take a guess how long it is designed to last for? I already know, so I won't say. Wait, what is it for? It like, it's, it's put over the reactor, so... Um, it's not as radioactive, so, like, that, people can go tour there, and people can go, you know, it's not, like, leaking a bunch of radioactivity. A hundred years. It is designed to last 100 years, and it costs two billion dollars, which is mind-blowing to me. And then, the last fact I have, 
is that since there are so many factors at play, so many people impacted by this tragedy, we will never actually know how many people died as a result of Chernobyl. Yes. Um, it could be... It's at least... It's at least in the tens of thousands. It could easily be in the hundred thousands. It could even it could even potentially be in the millions. Nobody will ever know. However, the Soviet Union, the USSR, the death toll of Chernobyl, unchanged since 1986, is still at 31. Only 31 people, they say, died because of Chernobyl. And it has been unchanged since 1986. And that's all I have. Okay. So, I have a thing. You have okay. a thing. That you didn't mention. So, Ooh. the Chernobyl liquidators? Yes. Okay, there was a group of people that had to go onto the roofs to shovel mm-hmm. that you didn't mention. Oh, oh yeah. the shovel. Yeah, the shoveling. And they could only go up for like 15 to 30 seconds or something at a at time. At a time, and they had to go back. Yeah. And I forgot about that as well. they cycling through it. Yep. Because mm. it was too much radiation. Yeah. I have some rapid-fire things. Go ahead. Um, kind of. So, first of all, Destination Truth, right? Mm-hmm. It was a TV show that aired, I think, on the Discovery yes. Channel. Um, they went to Chernobyl in an episode in 2009. And I don't remember it that well, but I do remember that uh, the main host of the show was Josh Gates. Mm-hmm. I do remember that, I think it was him. He was out there for too long, and his the radiation started spiking really crazy around him, and he, like, ran out of there. Like, he bolt, like he was like, nope, I'm out. I gotta go. Um, so that way nothing bad happened to him. Um, so that's my actual, like, fun fact, that a TV show did go there to investigate, like, spiritual ghost activity. Um, the fact about the Red Forest that I have. I'm also kind of trying to hurry because I know Katie's phone is going to die soon. And we're recording the video for YouTube, so... Um, when Russia invaded Ukraine this year, in February, um, I guess they were not wearing, like, obviously not wearing, like, radiation protective suits or anything, and they went through the Red Forest, which is considered one of the most radioactive areas, like, around Chernobyl and Pripyat. And apparently it was reported that one Russian soldier did die from acute radiation sickness in April. Oh, it is still April. Earlier this month. Um, But I don't know how accurate that is, because I know Russia keeps things very hush-hush sometimes. And let's also so. not forget that, that like, like I've said multiple times, that was 36 years later. And it's still... And it's still dangerously radioactive to the yep. point where a Russian soldier... Probably died from radioactivity. Yeah, when you visit Chernobyl, you're not allowed to touch anything. Yeah. Still. Yeah. Like, don't. Dustin wants to visit it. I want to go so bad. I want to go so bad. And I told him it's going to be a problem because of the wild dogs. Because I'm going to want to pet them. Yeah. And you can't. I know. Um, so I did not know this. I until I started looking stuff up while you were talking. The amusement park, you know, the Ferris wheel, the famous Ferris wheel Mm. that everyone. Yes. associates with Chernobyl, um, that amusement park was supposed to open May 1st, 1986. It wasn't even open when the disaster yeah. happened. Yeah, I did not realize that. And it's all still there to this yep, day. all still there. Although it's a, in a bit of disrepair. Yeah. But <laughs> As 36 years of decay will do that for you. Oh, no. Oh, no, more low battery. Hold on, I have to get up again. Oh. 
Oh god, your phone's at 10% now. Oh boy. Um, yeah, I didn't realize that. I guess they believe that before everyone was evacuated on the 27th of April in 1986, they did let some people in to try to distract them. Yeah. I guess. I'm not sure if that's like 100%. Um, it says several sources report that the park was open for a short time before the announcement to evacuate was made. Um, so I don't know if it actually was, but, you know. Um, and then finally, my other fun fact, fun fact, is that there's like that whole international nuclear event scale that yeah. came about in the 90s. Um, so there's a seven, which is a major accident. There's only ever been two of them. Chernobyl's one of them. Another one from, and the other one's from Japan. There's only ever been one six, level six, and that was in the Soviet Union in 1957. There have been four level fives. There's been one in Canada, one in the UK, one in Brazil. Do you two know what the other one is? I know what the other one is. What is it? Three Mile Island. It is indeed Three Mile Island, which happened in Harrisburg. So, in in our little... Our little state. We had a level five nuclear, nuclear. event yep. in 1979. The anniversary of that was also about a month ago, March 28th. Which, fun so. fact, there is still surviving um, a news report from the 70s about Three Mile Island. And mm-hmm. if you find it on YouTube or Google or wherever and you watch it, it's funny that the guy, the, you know, the interviewee or the news reporter says... The worst nuclear disaster in human history has happened at Three Mile Island. And? That was ten years before Chernobyl. Yep. So it's interesting to see that. Oh. And then there was one other one that happened in PA, I believe. Yeah. In 1960, and it's a level four. Happened in Westmoreland County, which is... Very close to Pittsburgh. Lancaster. The Lancaster area. So also by Harrisburg. Um... So, yeah, there have been two acts, almost potentially could have been a lot worse accidents in Pennsylvania related to nuclear accidents. So, there you go. There's your fun fact for the day about Pennsylvania. Oh, oh I need to shout out of the day. Oh, shout out of the day. Oh, no. Thank you for guesting and talking about Thank Chernobyl. Hey. Because I know you love talking about Chernobyl. Hey, so. thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. Of course. Okay. I don't remember. Well, we're doing Wisconsin. Yay, shout out Wisconsin. Thank you. Thank you for supporting us. Woo. We appreciate you. Um, I'm ending this by saying that it's supposed to be storming right now, and I'm very, very thankful, knock on wood, that the power did not go out. Because yeah. <laughs> that would have been bad. We still would have been able to record audio, because yeah. my laptop's not dependent on this working. But, yeah, we would just be in the dark, which would not have been good. (laughs) I probably would have screamed. (laughs) But thank you for coming on and talking about Chernobyl. Maybe next time I'll talk about, who knows. Yeah, maybe next time we can try to educate Katie on football. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. (laughs) I could just educate everybody on sports. A more more lighthearted topic next time you come on. Video games, sports, whatever the viewers want to hear, I can talk about. Yes, of course. As long as it's not K-pop, I don't know. He does not know K-pop. He only knows what we vaguely tell him, and I don't even think he understands some of that. Itzy is a K-pop. Yep. 
You're right. So is Stray Kids. Yes. Good job. Proud of you. <laughs> That's about it. Blackpink. Yeah. Yes. I know that one. You do know Blackpink. No Blackpink. Good, Good job. job. That's about You're, it. Yep. I know a couple more, but. That, that's fine. They're, They're mostly girl groups because that's what Hannah listens to. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. Okay. Have a great. Have great. Thank Have you the for, greatest. <laughs> thank you for coming on again. Woo.